Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 427. As always, you can get in touch with us by sending an email. Just send it on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could... You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, go on over to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. On this week of thanks, we have such a special episode and an important episode for you. Let me introduce our guest. Emily Waters is the Senior Manager of National Research and Policy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project. She oversees the research and policy work of the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, which is a coalition of over 50 organizations across the country that respond to and prevent violence against LGBTQ people. Emily has authored multiple national reports on the way that hate violence and intimate partner violence impact LGBTQ and HIV-affected communities. And right this second, she is here with us. Emily Waters, welcome to This Show is So Gay. Thank you so much for having me. Emily, we have so much ground to cover. Are you ready? I think I am. I hope I am. <laughs> we, we always start with what brings someone to this type of work, right? Like, this is really some specific work that you are doing. What brings Emily Waters to this work? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I originally got interested in gender-based violence as a whole when I was in high school, uh, and I just witnessed a lot of my friends experiencing kind of you know sexual violence and intimate partner violence and other forms of violence, um, and was always just it obviously made me sick to see like my friends and family experiencing this, um, but then always just felt like there there's a shift that can happen here and there's ways that we can change this. So I originally got involved kind of more from the um, victim services standpoint. I started working for um, a domestic violence organization in California and then moved and started doing that work in North Carolina um, and worked for a domestic violence and sexual violence agency in rural North Carolina, which was a very interesting experience to say the least. Um, And it was actually there, interestingly enough, that I started to get more involved in looking at specifically the ways that LGBTQ communities experience intimate partner violence um, and sexual violence, um, both as a queer person myself and recognizing that there was kind of no reflection of my own experience and the work that I was doing, but also as I started to get more involved um, in research work and at that time a little bit more of academic work um, and noticing that the research that was coming out was saying how LGBTQ communities experience kind of disproportionate rates of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. And so I really um, saw the need, um, both kind of in my own life, but then also in the research and the um, information that was coming out. Now, I don't know if you know this, Emily, but it's okay to only have one master's degree. You don't need two. Oh my gosh, that's so funny. Yeah, so I guess for folks who don't know, I have a master's of social work and a master's of public health. I am forever one of those people. I I love research. Um, I love information gathering. I I actually love academia in many ways. I love being around people where their kind of sole purpose in life is to figure out and gather information and to solve problems and to think about things critically. Um, and then I also have like a deep love of social justice and social justice movements. And sometimes there is a 
deep tension between academia and social justice, yes. um, but I can see how one can benefit the other. So that's kind of where the, both the social work and the public health kind of came into play there. Um, and so far, I've loved them both. Let me just say that if you wake up one morning and you're like, you know what, I need a third master's degree, I am the director of a master's program, and I will guarantee you entry. I'm just putting that out there. Oh, just my God. I appreciate that. I often think about going back. There you so. go. All right. <laughs> I just would like the admissions office to know I just enrolled another one right here on the show. Just putting that out there. What brought you to the New York City Anti-Violence Project? I guess we should back up a step. For folks who don't know, we, we have featured the New York City Anti-Violence Project many times on the show, never without Sharon Staple. This is new ground for me, so it's very exciting. For, for folks who don't know about the Anti-Violence Project, how do you encapsulate their work for, for a listening audience? So uh, the New York City Anti-Violence Project is obviously located in New York City. We work in all five boroughs, um, and we work on all forms of violence against LGBTQ people um, and HIV-affected people as well, so including hate violence, intimate partner violence, sexual violence, police violence, forms of systemic violence. Um, and we do that through a multi-pronged approach. Um, we have a 24-hour bilingual hotline that folks can call um, if they have experienced some type of violence, if they're unsure if they've experienced some type of violence, or if they just need kind of general support and care. That's available 24 hours. And then we also have um, crisis counseling and counseling services in-house, and then we also do kind of phone sessions around that. Um, and other what we'd call like advocacy services for survivors, so you know housing placement services, economic empowerment placing services. You know we work within schools to work with survivors in schools as well. Um, so that's kind of our clinical side of things. And then we also do we have a legal department um, that provides all sorts of legal advocacy. Um, we actually have a immigration specific attorney here, which has been really cool to see the work that they've been doing specifically in the current climate with LGBTQ immigrants who are also survivors. But we provide all sorts of legal services within our legal department. And then we have our community organizing and public advocacy department, which is actually the, the department that I work in. Um, and that's where we really work towards uh, systemic change. So we work on, you know, kind of shifting cultural and social beliefs around um, LGBTQ identities and experiences, and then also, you know, kind of organize the power within LGBTQ communities to um, increase protections on the local, state, and national level. And then on top of all of that, we do about a million trainings a year with, you know, different organizations and groups and individuals and things like that as well. What does the senior manager of national research and policy do? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I def I'm sure many people feel like this in their jobs. Um, I definitely have one of those jobs that like just encapsulates many, many different things. So my role here is, as you mentioned earlier, I primarily oversee and manage the research and policy work of the National Coalition of Anti-Violence Programs, um, which is, it's kind of an entity in and of itself, but it's technically a program of the New York City Anti-Violence Project. Um, so we staff and resource the National Coalition. So I, you know, kind of represent all of our research interests. I write these two annual reports every year, but then also advise and participate on other research projects, both in academic research and then other kind of community-based research as well, um, on anything related to LGBTQ 
um, identities and issues. Um, we have a very broad understanding and definition of violence. So I don't just specifically work on kind of the physical forms of violence that we would think of, but I also work on kind of employment discrimination, things like that, and um, support research in those areas. Uh, I also represent the coalition on a, in a variety of different policy spaces. So um, I would say we're most kind of prominent right now within the kind of intimate partner violence and sexual violence world um, in terms of the policy advocacy that we do. Um, but we also do policy advocacy um, within kind of every issue that the Department of Justice touches. Um, so including intimate partner violence and sexual violence, but also um, criminal legal issues police accountability and things like that as well. So I do all of that kind of externally and then internally um, a big part of my role and one of the things that I most enjoy doing is I spend a lot of time thinking and scheming and figuring out how to best resource the folks who are doing this work on the ground across the country. You know, we have amazing organizations that provide all sorts of resources and services to LGBTQ people in their areas who have been incredibly under-resourced for decades and right. are just now kind of getting the attention that they deserve. So uh, that's a, one of my most favorite parts of my job is figuring out how to get resources to those people. You know, there are all these direct services that, that you all provide, that, that many of which you've mentioned already, but your role to me strikes me as being a bit different. Like in some ways, Emily Waters is kind of tasked with making sense of it all or, or providing yeah. <laughs> us with the grand picture. Is that, is that fair to say? That's 100% fair to say. You know, it's interesting because we, we've spent a lot of time you know, trying to get people to pay attention to violence, trying to say, you know, violence is something that really impacts our communities, um, and this is an issue that we need to be looking at. And I think for a long time, overall, as kind of a queer trans movement, um, I would maybe say specifically kind of the gay part of the movement, um, was looking at, you know, marriage equality and what equality felt like for people. And um, then when marriage equality happened, you know, all of a sudden people were like, oh, wait, there's actually all of these other things that we need to right. look at. And one of the things that people really started to pay attention to was violence, like realizing that our communities are still very much impacted by violence, um, whether it's intimate partner violence, hate violence, sexual violence, et cetera. Um, but then when people started to pay attention to violence, they, we all started, you know, they started to realize how complicated violence really is, right? Violence isn't just a isolated incident that happens, but it's connected to these kind of broader systems of inequities and oppressions that exist in our communities and environments. So I spend a lot of time talking through with people and trying to make sense of myself, you know, how something like, you know, Jeff Sessions rolling back protections in schools for trans students is directly related to how trans people experience intimate partner violence both as teenagers and later on in their life, right? Trying to make sense of this kind of broader system that leads up to violence so that we can best figure out how to prevent and end that violence. With trying to get this on people's radar, right, and our shifting priorities over the past couple of years, what have you found to be some of the most effective methods to get data out there in a way that people grasp it and say, oh my gosh, we, we actually need to do something? You know, I think there's a few different approaches that we've taken. Um, one of them is, and this is kind of an unfortunate part of my job, but and I think an important part of our job is um, letting people know how striking the information really is. You know, like when we think about, for example, intimate partner violence um, is one of the kind of my love, the, one of my passions in life is trying to get people to 
talk about intimate partner violence more. Um, and what we know is that LGBTQ people experience similar, if not higher, rates of intimate partner violence than our cisgender um, or straight counterparts. And that's usually something that people don't expect or know. But once we start to dive even further into those um, statistics, it becomes pretty striking, um, specifically for some communities. So we know, for example, for bi communities, um, you know, like nearly half of bisexual women at some point will experience intimate partner violence or sexual violence. And that's, I mean, that's pretty bananas high. Like that's right. that one in two bi women will experience this at some point in their life. And, um, you know, we know that the same, it's pretty similar for trans communities. And um, what we also know is if a trans person is also bi, they're experiencing higher rates. And, you know, so sometimes we do use the kind of shock of those numbers. They're real numbers. Um, you know, they're not just these things we're pulling out of nowhere. These real experiences, the real people behind them. Uh, to show, like, listen, this is actually a, a problem. And then what we try to do from there is then try to contextualize the numbers, right? People can kind of get lost in numbers and data, and I often have people being like, I, I, you just said something about an odds ratio, and I don't even know what that means. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so then, we, you know, we try to contextualize it and, and try to show, like, why that number matters right. and why it matters to our communities and why it should matter to us personally. So for intimate partner violence, for example, you know, one thing that I often like to say is, like, you know, it's not just that one in two bi people, for example, or one in two bi women are experiencing this intimate partner violence and this sexual violence, and they're just kind of experiencing that on their own, but that's a trauma that our entire community is holding, right? That's all us interacting with each other after that trauma happens. Um, and that's all. That's something that we all have to kind of deal with and heal and figure out together because it's impacting all of our relationships and our ability to navigate through the world, right? So not only just giving people the striking information, but then contextualizing it and then making it feel like, you know, it, it is our responsibility and we love and care for each other in our communities and this is part of that. Yeah. One of the things that you do so well in the information that you put out there is to highlight that it also obviously affects the individuals. And then in following up, it affects how they access resources and just how the whole system is set up. Can, can you speak a little bit about that importance of comprehensive and inclusive services? Oh, yeah, definitely. To give a, a little bit of background here specifically around intimate partner violence and these reports. So how these reports started was about 20 years ago. Uh, this is actually the 20th year that we've released this intimate partner violence report that we released um, a couple weeks ago. And about 20 years ago, you know, NCVP member organizations um, were having, you know, lots of LGBTQ people were coming to them and saying that they were experiencing this violence in their relationship. They didn't possibly perceive it as being intimate partner violence or another way of saying that is domestic violence because they didn't really see themselves in kind of the broader narrative and but we our member orgs were seeing like okay this is happening this violence is happening in our communities so and, and we're not being reflected right in the broader conversation right and people are also coming to us and saying that they can't access resources like if they call someone they get misgendered or um you know, they, they feel like they can't share one of the deepest parts of their relationship, which is the gender of their partner. Or, um, so NCVP members came together and started to collect this information in order to advocate for more resources for people. And it's kind of been one of those experiences. I mean, even in my short time doing this over the last, you know, three years writing these reports um, and getting more involved in LGBTQ-specific intimate partner violence work, it's almost like the more 
the more you kind of raise awareness around an issue, the more that you learn the barriers that exist. So I don't even think people back then, 20 years ago, really understood how kind of deeply ingrained um, kind of heteronormativity and cisnormativity is in the intimate partner violence movement. So um, what we know is that LGBTQ people, you know, have experienced a lot of barriers trying to access resources and care when they're experiencing intimate partner violence because the movement overall for so long with intimate partner violence has been very focused on the ways that cisgender women experience violence by cisgender men. And so services are set up specifically for that. So shelters are set up specifically for cisgender women trying to keep women-only spaces to make women safe, for example. Even the ways that people figured out how to assess um, power and control dynamics within a relationship is very gendered in that way, which we know, for example, with police, oftentimes when police are called to same-gender intimate partner violence situations, they end up just arresting both people because they don't know how to do an assessment, and that causes a lot of trauma, obviously, on the survivor when they're trying to access care, and, you know, they get arrested for it. Um, and so I could go on and on, but essentially, you know, the there are not a lot of services specifically set up for LGBTQ people, and the services that do exist around intimate partner violence um, often re-traumatize people when they're trying to access care. So that means that LGBTQ people, you know, end up staying in unhealthy and sometimes abusive relationships longer. Right. Again, listeners, we are here with Emily Waters, the Senior Manager of National Research and Policy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project. Look, I would like to preface this next question by saying, I swear to God, I have a PhD. Um, and so <laughs> the simplicity of what I'm about to ask you, I, I just would like that factored into this. Um, and I would also like to say, I am totally a qualitative researcher. So the, ah. the quantitative pieces, uh, they're not so good for me. I don't understand the numbers. In the most simplest terms, when people come up to you, because there's no way I'm the first person to ask this, and say, but Emily, are things getting better? How do you uh, respond to that? Are you asking specifically around intimate partner violence yeah. or are you asking about violence overall? Oh, gosh. Can we go with the one that's going to make me feel better? Is either one of those <laughs> going to make me feel better, Emily? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you feel worse, and then I'm going to lift you back up. Again. Great. I'm here. That's what I'm pro at, okay. right? <laughs> yeah. So um, are things getting better? I would say that we are, we're just really starting to understand the problem itself. Okay. So it's hard to say whether or not things are actually getting any better or any worse at this point. Um, I will say that specifically around intimate partner violence, um, you know, I think the broader mainstream domestic violence movement they deserve some credit. They've actually done quite a bit of work on trying to, you know, make their resources and their services and just the information out there more LGBTQ inclusive. Um, you know, the first piece of federal legislation passed um, by Congress that in includes explicit protections for LGBTQ people is the Violence Against Women Act. Yeah. Um, and that's a direct result of the domestic violence movement you know, really coming together and really kind of going to bat for our communities. But with that being said, um, you know, LGBTQ people and sexual orientation and gender identity, for example, are still very often left out of research and information that specifically looks at intimate partner violence. So, you know, for example, we don't actually even know for sure the rates of transgender people who experience intimate partner violence um, because gender identity is so often left out. So, like, right. we, we're just starting to understand the problem, um, and I think the more that we learn about it, the 
more that we're going to realize how big of a problem it actually is. Um, and then another thing that I think is kind of the unfortunate, where I'm going to keep taking you down here for a second, um, is what we know right now under this current political climate, right, is that our communities are under a lot of stress. Right. Not only kind of the rollbacks, the kind of what feels like the nonstop rollbacks of protections for LGBTQ people and other um, marginalized communities as well, uh, but then also the kind of increased anti-LGBTQ rhetoric that's happening, um, the increased hate violence that's happening, right, that puts a lot of stress on our communities. And what we know is a risk factor for intimate partner violence is stress in a relationship, right? So, um, you know, I did a training over the summer in rural Pennsylvania um, with this domestic violence organization. And um, the entire time I was there, the phone was just ringing off the hook and people were just coming in nonstop. And I asked them, I was like, is this normal for you all? And they were like, no, this has just been the most banana summer that we've ever seen. And asked them what they thought and, like, why they thought that was happening. And they just said, like, our community is under just extreme stress right yeah. now. Like, they're just feeling the political trauma of the moment. Um, so, you know, that, I think, is a very real thing that we need to understand and look at. Where I'm going to bring you back up. I was hoping that would happen at some point. Yeah. <laughs> I'm on the ground right now. Go ahead. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're like, oh, my God, we're never going to survive this. This just became the last episode of This Show is So Gay because right. that's where I'm at right now. But, yes, go ahead. <laughs> that's what I'm good at, you know, just ending radio shows left, right, and center here. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it is funny. I do spend a lot of time talking about very um, sad and depressing things. But the good news is, is that I think, you know, we're coming – to people, people are starting to talk about this, right? Good. And we are starting to understand that the ways that I think the political trauma impacts our communities and the ways that for, you know, for decades that the ways that anti-LGBTQ bias and oppression has impacted our relationships. And we're starting to, I think, as a community, take a little bit more responsibility and control over, like, oh, wait, we actually get to decide what our relationships look like. And there's actually a lot of beauty in being queer and in queer relationships. And we don't actually have to, you know, kind of live by heteronormative or cisnormative right. narratives or stereotypes. And so we can lift up the beautiful parts of us and also have these really hard conversations. So I will say that I think we're just beginning to understand it, but I, I often will just come across, you know, the most amazing and wonderful stories that are just specifically rooted in kind of queer and trans experiences of community coming together for people, um, you know, and dreaming and scheming up of completely innovative and new ways of addressing violence that don't rely on, um, you know, kind of harmful systems and things. So I think that we're just beginning to understand it, but I think that we already have a lot of resource in our community to address it. Got it. I want to talk about that personal aspect. I mean, we're joking about, you know, Emily Waters' Harbinger of Doom, but I would yeah. imagine that it's quite a bit to be holding all of this information, right? I'm not saying that people avoid you and avoid eye contact with you, and when they see you coming, think, oh gosh, okay. Emily's going to have more stats for us. But for an individual, you are an individual doing this work, and we have more of the work to talk about, but as an individual doing with this work, I would imagine that there is some strain associated with holding this information in your head. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, vicarious trauma is a very real oh, yeah. thing. yes. Yeah, um, and I think especially if you 
are a person who holds, you know, some type of marginalized identity. Right. And, you know, I mean, there's just a lot of trauma in the world overall. So we're all kind of walking around with our own trauma in some ways. Um, and so when you have that kind of personal tie to the work, it's very easy to kind of make everything personal. And, and I think the other hard thing, too, is, you know, sometimes I feel like I spend a lot of my time kind of banging my head against the wall trying to get people to trying to convince people that something matters right. um, and that something should be important to them. Um, but the good, the other good part about this, and just this is kind of similar to what I was just saying, is that um, I, I definitely see the worst of people on almost a daily basis. Um, but I also, on the same token, get to see the best of people. Um, I, I I work with, and I feel incredibly fortunate. You know, I work with some people both here in New York and across the country that I truly believe if they had all the resources in the world, like would they could genuinely change the world um, and make it a 100% better place in, in these really creative and innovative ways. And um, so I'm, I'm fortunate that I get both of that. <laughs> you know, I don't just get the, the trauma and the bad. I also get the good. Um, and then, you know, just... On top of that, I think what we are starting to do, and I think, you know, social justice movements overall are starting to look at this a little bit more is, you know, how do we hold space for that? How do we hold space for um, the fact that we are holding a lot of this trauma? And, you know, I, I think everyone has kind of seen more and more resources coming out recently on, like, you know, how do you take care of yourself when you're protesting? Or when, when do you get to stay home? Or, you know, because <laughs> um, I think people are realizing, like, we're in this for the long haul, um, and we have to take care of each other. So those conversations are happening, um, and I think more of them need to happen. We need to figure out how to take care of each other in social justice movements, I think, a little bit more. And I'm grateful that I get to be a part of those conversations and the development of those resources. See, it's not just Emily Waters' harbinger of doom. It's also Emily Waters' bringer of hope. We can say that. Exactly, exactly. No, I mean, and honestly, that's the most, my favorite parts of my job, as I was saying before, are like resourcing the folks that are doing just really cool work. And there are people who are doing amazing work across the country um, around all sorts of issues, intimate partner violence being one of them, but you know, other forms of violence and discrimination as well. So yeah. let's talk about the always sexy topic of demography. I'm going to ask you a true or false question. I feel like you have the right answer at your fingertips. True or false, Emily, it is a good thing that the 2020 census will not include questions about sexual orientation and gender identity. <laughs> I'm going to say that's false. Yeah, I think you got yeah. that one right. I think you got that yeah. one right. You know, I've, I've tried to talk about this on, on the show before, and, and I'm so happy to have you on here to talk about it as well. That decision really affects the services and, and just the information that we can put out there to the world. Oh, 100%. You know, I, I think, you know, over the last few years, I've done a lot more um, work in the realm of kind of federal policy work and getting involved more in federal legislation. And and specifically, one of the things that has been the most eye-opening to me is how resources get allocated, Yeah. specifically on the federal level, but then even kind of going through onto the state level as well. Um, and a lot of the ways that resources get allocated on who, is based on who can demonstrate the most need. Right. Um, and if you are not, if you're not counted and your experiences <laughs> aren't part of that conversation, the resources are not going to go to your communities. So the fact that LGBTQ people are not being counted on the census means that we 
don't actually know exactly how many LGBTQ people exist, but then we can't do things like say how many LGBTQ people for sure exist, you know, in poverty, are experiencing housing discrimination, are experiencing problems in healthcare, et cetera. Like those numbers within the census is, is basically how we figure out kind of, you know, problems as a population overall. Um, and without that information, it's very difficult to advocate for resources. Um, so that, I mean, that's, that's an intent. And the other part of that too is like, that, that's an intentional move to take our communities out. Um, you know, we weren't included before, we were about to get included, and then it was intentional to take us out. Um, so that in and of itself is telling, yeah. right, um, of like what this government is willing to do for our communities. What happens at the Anti-Violence Project when, when you all hear about, you know, if there's media coverage or just a significant incident of violence? Because I would imagine that you guys are hearing all sides of the spectrum, right? You, you have the hotline and, and you're hearing stories that aren't going to come out in the media, but then you have some high-profile acts of violence that come your way. I don't know if it's like when the bat phone goes off or I'm just picturing in my head of like what ha what actually happens there. I just imagine it's it's the although I also think that you guys are kind of always on alert so that it's not just like in the firehouse, you know, when the alarm goes off and everyone rushes to put their boots on. But but how would you describe how you all approach this in a way that has a sense of urgency but isn't manic? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if we've mastered that, yeah. <laughs> to be totally honest with you. Um, I think we're doing the best that we can. Yeah. You know, it's hard. And I think if you talk to anyone who does violence work, they'd probably say the same thing. Um, the, and and it, this is probably true, actually, of a num number of different kind of public health issues or social issues. But with violence specifically, like, the more awareness that you raise around, around violence, the more that you're going to hear about violence happening. Like, it's not like you start to raise more awareness around it, and then people are like, oh, this is an issue, and it starts to go away. It's that people start to realize that that's an experience that they're having in their own life and feel like they can then come forward, and so you start to get more reports of it. You know, the more that kind of media becomes aware of it, the more that they're kind of going out and searching for these stories, and so the more kind of stories that you hear. Um, so it, 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 it can be constant. <laughs> and an example of this, you know, is the, and something that is a good thing that has had a lot of attention raised to it is, um, are the homicides of um, trans people and specifically trans women of color that, you know, we've just been receiving more and more reports every year. Right. Um, and we often get asked this question of, um, it, are the numbers increasing because there are more homicides happening or the numbers increasing because people are just more aware of it um, and media is getting better about reporting on it? Um, and that's something we, we actually do not know the answer to that. Um, we know that trans communities generally are feeling more unsafe, you right. know, and are feeling, um, are coming to us and, you know, reporting to our member programs or trying to access services and things and are saying, you know, like that they are feeling more unsafe in their communities. Um, but what we also know is that we we spend a significant amount of our time getting in touch with reporters, letting them know that they're misgendering someone, that they're misnaming someone, um, that the situation that they're reporting on is actually different. Um, and so we know that if folks were correctly gendered or correctly named, that the, that we would have better information on the number of people, but it may seem like it's going up. Um, so, you know, that's um, 
to answer your question about like, do we become manic about it or is it like this kind of controlled process? Um, it, it's a little bit of both at all times. Um, and, you know, one thing that I spend a lot of my time thinking about is how do we both highlight that hate violence in particular, um, but intimate partner violence as well, um, is a very real thing that's happening in our communities right. that we will hear about these, you know, kind of high-profile incidents, but then we we also, you know, hear about the the other incidents that happen on an everyday basis that aren't as high-profile, right, that this trauma is existing in our community. So how do we highlight that and lift up these stories and make sure that people are paying attention to them um, without over-traumatizing our communities and without causing compassion fatigue? Um, and that's a very kind of fine line and a difficult thing to balance sometimes. Yeah. I wasn't even planning on talking about this, but I'll be very upfront with yeah. you. So I, I have this addiction that I really do need to work on of responding to ultra right wing gay conservatives on Twitter. I, I know, know that I need to stop. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm entering a program. thing, you know. <laughs> fine. I sometimes get sucked down men's rights rabbit holes. So. Oh, God, that's, in, yeah, no, I wouldn't go there at all. Um, but yeah, no, this is, I, I know that I need to enter a program. I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> but but one of the things that came up this past week, and, and maybe you can even help me with this, uh, with mm-hmm. more media attention, and right, it is the deadliest year in years and years for the trans community. And one individual who's got, you know, like tens of thousands of followers, and I certainly am not going to give him more press, but he went incident by incident, murder by murder, and his whole goal was to articulate this person wasn't murdered because they were trans, so this is not significant. And I was almost in some ways at a loss how to respond. Like his whole point was people get murdered all the time, so why is this more significant because this person was not murdered because they were trans? And so in making those distinctions between hate crimes and the presence of crime in our society, how do we go about responding to that? Well, (laughs) welcome to my addiction. Yeah, exactly. Like trying to make sense of the totally irrational humans of the world. Um, Here's what I would say that I don't. I don't think I will ever be able to give an answer that that person is ever going to find to, like, kind of validate that these deaths matter, right? right? Like, that person is just transphobic, and they will find any evidence that they can that we shouldn't be paying attention to this. Right. Um, and so, unfortunately, I do not think I have the answer to change that person's mind, nor do I honestly really want to spend a significant amount of my time thinking about that person. Yay. Um, <laughs> the people, though, that I do often think about, you know, how we can frame this information or kind of frame these arguments and, um, you know, create more empathy for trans people overall are, are not those people who are the kind of extreme transphobic kind of conservative people, but people who are a little bit more in the middle, people who, you know, like like to believe that they are not transphobic or maybe hold a little bit of that, but generally like believe in the good of people. Like those are the people that I often try to speak to. Um, and I, I still sometimes hear that same argument from them, um, that if we actually look at the numbers overall, that, um, you know, that this actually isn't that big of a problem if we kind of look at crime statistics and all those things. Um, so what I would say to that person um, is a, a few things. So 
One of them is, is it's, it's important to look at the rates of homicides um, compared to the population, right? And once again, we don't actually have a lot of information on um, trans people overall, but there have been some folks um, who have started to look at this. Um, and one of them is actually a very interesting resource that we worked on um, with Mike. You know Mike.com, they're the um, yeah. kind of media house, yeah, and it's called Unerased, and they, they spent quite a bit of time, and I was super appreciative of it, kind of looking at the number of homicides that were happening in comparison to the rates of population um, for the, with the best information that we have. Um, and what they actually found was that the rates of homicides of trans women in particular, but trans communities overall, was actually much higher than the general population. Yeah. Um, and that's with the limited information that we have, right? So um, we can already see that there is a unique thing that's happening within this community that more trans people in comparison to... Um, you know, the kind of trans population are being killed compared to kind of cisgender people. Um, so that's one thing. And not that we need to validate that to all of a sudden say, like, oh, no, these deaths matter. But right. if that's something that people, if that's some information that people need, fine, take it. And then the other thing in terms of, like, whether or not people are dying specifically because they're trans um, you know, it's impossible to take a trans person out of a transphobic society. Yes. Um, and it's impossible to say that that person's experience of violence in that one incident or the other violence that they experienced in their life has nothing to do with being trans. Um, because what we know is, first of all, that trans people experience really high rates of housing discrimination, employment discrimination, discrimination in health care, discrimination in accessing kind of all resources that keep us kind of healthy and vital in life. Um, and if you look at violence research, once again, I'm kind of an academic at heart, if you look at violence research, we know that those are the risk factors for experiencing violence, right? Like if you don't have access to health care, economic resources, housing, et cetera, that increases the likelihood that you're going to experience violence. So that person experiencing discrimination on the basis of being trans in those places increases the likelihood that they're going to experience violence in other areas of their life. So that's kind of one part of it. And then on the other side of it, too, um, the ways that, peop that trans people experience violence often has to do with the ways that people value their lives. Um, and if a person feels that a another person is less valuable, uh, you know, that violence may escalate more quickly um, and may lead to homicide more quickly. And that's just a, kind of an unfortunate reality there. So the ways that trans people experience violence has everything to do with them being trans. Um, that may not be the only thing that it has to do with, right? It could do with the fact that they're black and trans. It could do with that they're an immigrant and trans. It could have to do that they're a trans woman. And so there's both kind of anti-trans bias and misogyny playing out. You know, there's a number of factors, but that the transphobia that exists is very much related to the ways that trans people experience violence. Yeah. And by the way, I, I think it's critically important to highlight, as you did, that reframing of who are we speaking to, right? Where can we yeah. have the most effect? W which brings us to the key piece of all this. So Emily Waters, Senior Manager yeah. of National Research and Policy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project. What can we do, right? So we are invested in these resources and, and we are learning the information that we need to learn and, and we need to have this sense of urgency that there are things that we need to do to support all of our brothers and sisters out there, what can we actually get out there and do? 
Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that there there's lots of things that people can do. And so going back to, um, you know, people need to take care of themselves in this current moment, and I'm speaking specifically to kind of queer and trans and other marginalized communities right now, um, I think sometimes we feel this over overwhelming sense of responsibility for all of the issues impacting um, our communities and impacting the world out there. And I think that's a great sense of responsibility to have, particularly as a marginalized person. Um, But one of the first things I think that we can actually do as queer and trans people is to start taking better care of ourselves, to be honest, and is to recognize kind of the impacts of the ways that this political, the impacts that this political trauma is having on ourselves and on our relationships and in our communities and to give ourselves some love, <laughs> give ourselves some care. Um, it's really hard to impact things if we're all feeling very depleted. And that only causes more stress in our relationships and causes more unhealthy relationships, which then can escalate to, you know, intimate partner violence. So one of the first things I would say, and I know this is probably not what you were expecting or needing here, but like we we need to take care of ourselves. No, um, hugely important. Hugely important. Hugely important. Yeah. And it's not selfish. It's not selfish to do. It's It's one of the most vital and important things that we can do as a social justice movement is to figure out how, and, you know, as people (laughs) who want to take care of each other, even if you don't identify as someone who's part of a social justice movement, but someone who maybe cares about your community, um, one of the best things that you can do is make sure that you're going to be able to be in it for the long haul. Um, And that means taking care of yourself. So that's one of the first things. By the way, do I need to do this thing where I pause and say, Emily Waters, you better be doing that for yourself? Oh, <laughs> you know, I will say um, I am getting better at it. Okay. Um, yes, I, I appreciate that. I, I definitely appreciate that. Um, you know, sometimes we can say the thing without doing the thing. Right. Um, yeah. It, it is something that, that I have been recognizing um, the need for overall in community and, yeah, have kind of been reflecting that back to myself a little bit, too. Okay. Um, so thank you. I appreciate that. Are you doing that for you? That's not the point of the story. The point of the story. <laughs> I heard you say that you were going down some uh, Twitter rabbit holes there. So. Um, I don't appreciate you using my own words against me and the truth yeah. against me, you and your research. All right, give us another tip of something that we can do. What else can we do? So we have to take care of ourselves because we can't do anything if we don't. Yes, exactly. The other thing that I would say that we can do um, is and once again, this may not be, I'll get to the, I think, the thing that you're hoping for in a second here, but the other thing that I think we can do is reach out and take care of each other Yeah. Um, in that very kind of simple way of, like, letting other people know that we care about them and letting other people know um, that we are there for them, that if they need space, they can take space. If they want company, they can have company. Um, and specifically around intimate partner violence, that's a very important thing to do um, because when people are experiencing violence in their relationships, they often get isolated from community. Um, and that's a very specific tactic that abusive partners use is to isolate people from community. Um, and so reaching out and letting people know, even if they don't automatically respond, but just letting people know that you love and care about them can be a vital, vital resource for people who are experiencing violence in their relationship. Yes. Um, And then it also kind of helps overall when we're kind of all experiencing, you know, kind of the political trauma and stress and violence 
in our everyday lives, um, having that one person kind of say, I, I still see you and I still care about you and you are a valuable human to me um, is so, so important. And I think it's actually a radical act that we don't give enough credit to. Yeah. Uh, so those are kind of two of the, the basic things. The other thing that I would say is reach out to the folks who are organizing in your local communities. Um, reach out to the LGBTQ centers. Reach out to the folks who are doing kind of immigration organizing work. Um, and figure out, like, what work is happening in your local community that you can support. Um, I think right now in this, you know, moment, we're realizing how important and vital local and state organizing work is. Um, and, you know, in this last election, it was, that was hugely inspiring to see all of these people getting elected to their city governments and state governments and um, that are specifically queer and trans and other marginalized identities. And um, that has huge power and huge impact. Um, you know, so definitely getting involved in those kind of local and state organizing efforts um, makes all the difference. And, um, you know, getting in touch with the local domestic violence organizations and asking them what they do specifically around queer and trans identities if they don't, um, if they're not a queer and trans specific org. Um, and if they're not, then, you know, kind of helping to advocate to make them more queer and trans affirming. Um, but I think, you know, once again, kind of beyond your kind of friends and family circle, just getting involved in community is incredibly important and vital. Um, and then on the kind of national level, not to keep adding things to the list here. Let's do it. I got a checklist. I'm ready to keep going. Right. <laughs> Hopefully they're not too hard of things that I'm asking people to do. Um, you know, and I think this is something people are already doing, and I'm super into it. It's been amazing to see, and it's been inspiring to see how, like, aware people are getting about the ways that the federal government works. Um, so looking at things, you know, like the rollbacks of rules and regulations um, within departments that may have specific impacts on LGBTQ communities um, and you know, looking at the, the the decisions that the attorney general is making, and how that impacts LGBTQ communities and other marginalized groups. And you know, we are about to start gearing up for the next reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act um, that will most likely happen sometime in 2018, possibly a little bit later, depending on what happens in Congress. Um, and that is once again the only piece of federal legislation that includes explicit protections for LGBTQ people. Um, so getting involved in those efforts to make sure that what protections we have stay in place and the legislation moving forward um, to ensure that it stays inclusive of LGBTQ people. There it is. There it is. Yeah. Listeners, Emily Waters is the Senior Manager of National Research and Policy at the New York City Anti-Violence Project. What you all need to do right this very second, at the very least, is learn more. And you can learn more by going to AVP. Org. That's avp.org. There's information there on how to get involved. There are resources there. I'm feeling pretty confident that Emily is okay with you clicking that Donate Now button because more <laughs> funds will always help this work. You're okay with that, right, Emily? I, yeah, I'm fine with it. Yeah. Okay, she's fine with it. Yeah. avp.org. <laughs> I will say this to you, Emily. 
I, I see you, you have value, and you are important to both me, to our community, and to this work. I mean, truly what you are doing is helping to frame this issue. You are creating that sense of urgency that should already be there for everybody, but we know that we need some assistance with that. And you are pointing us in the direction of making some real and true change. And I know you're not doing it by yourself over there at AVP, and our shout out to everybody doing this important work, but as you are the one I'm speaking with right now, my gosh, this is a beautiful thing to behold the work that you're doing. Thank you. I, I truly appreciate that. And I really appreciate you taking the time to um, have me on and to talk about this. I know it can feel a little doom and gloom, um, but it's so vital that we talk about it. So I really appreciate you taking the time to do that. Love is but a song we sing Is the way we die All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we don't have a ton of time left on this week's episode, but there are a few LGBTQ stories that we want to get out there because, again, it's another week and thus another episode of This Show is So Gay. So how could we not have yet another update on President Trump's ban on trans people serving in the military. And yes, again this week, yet another update. A second federal judge has blocked President Donald Trump's ban on transgender people serving in the military. District Judge Marvin J. Garbus ruled that the proposed prohibition was, quote, egregiously offensive with no evidence to show it was necessary for any legitimate national interest. Again, this is a district judge who said this about the proposed prohibition. He said it was, quote, egregiously offensive with no evidence to show it was necessary for any legitimate national interest. Under this Maryland judge's decision, trans troops who have scheduled transition-related medical care will be able to continue with their treatment with no deadline. What more can we say? Uh, Truly, it's every single week. Every single week we have another update on this ban that was done through three tweets in July. 
This isn't the only judge who has said things about this. Federal Judge Colleen Collar Cottley filed an injunction in Washington, D.C., blocking parts of the ban last month. She ruled that a lawsuit brought by five active soldiers with more than 60 combined years of service was likely to win. This new decision, this Maryland decision, goes even further. It stops the proposed ban on federal funds being used for gender reassignment surgery in the military. The case, which was brought by the ACLU of Maryland on behalf of six soldiers, led District Judge Garbus to state that President Trump's ban was, quote, not driven by genuine concerns regarding military efficacy. The judge also said that the proposal was a betrayal of trans troops who were already serving and one which could not even survive a rational review in court. He wrote this, the judge, quote, the lack of any justification for the abrupt policy change combined with the discriminatory impact to a group of our military service members who have served our country capably and honorably cannot possibly constitute a legitimate governmental interest. He went on to say that for Trump to remove constitutionally given freedoms from a group of individuals was so egregious and so outrageous that it shocks the conscience. The judge tore into President Trump's inflammatory tweet specifically, writing that his sudden announcement, quote, certainly can be considered shocking under the circumstances. And the judge added this finally, quote, a capricious, arbitrary, and unqualified tweet of new policy does not trump the methodical and systematic review by military stakeholders qualified to understand the ramifications of policy changes. In response, the Justice Department said this, quote, we disagree with the court's ruling and are currently evaluating the next steps. The ACLU, unsurprisingly, is celebrating the ruling, calling it a triumph over uninformed speculation, myths, and stereotypes. What are we going to bring you next week? I'm sure we will have an update next week because President Trump in July tweeted three statements banning trans people from serving in the military, and now every single week since July, we have another update for you. I don't know if this is a smokescreen for something else. I don't know if they really were so delusional that they thought this was going to go through without any objection, but it's not going well there for the Trump administration. Other stories that are out there, this one comes to you from the wonderful world of academia. A federal judge has ruled in favor of a transgender professor, awarding her with over $1.1 million after her university denied her tenure and a promotion. The jury of six women and two men chose to award Rachel Tudor, a former English professor at Oklahoma State University, they awarded her $1.165 million in damages after a week-long trial in Oklahoma City Federal Court. In its verdict, the jury in the U.S. District Court in western Oklahoma found Tudor had proven that she was denied tenure and the chance to reapply on the grounds of her gender identity. She was hired by the institution in 2004 as a tenure-track assistant professor in the English department and presented as male at the time. Following her transition in 2007, she was the university's first openly transgender professor. Since notifying the university that she would be presenting as a woman at work for the 2007-2008 academic year, Tudor alleged that human resources informed her that she would not be fired as long as she followed certain rules. Tudor professed that her body was policed by these rules, regulating what clothing she could wear and limiting her to one single occupant restroom on campus. She won her lawsuit. We will see what she does next. I 
question whether she will stay at the same school. That would be tough for me to do. It's always tough to stay to school after you are denied tenure. It hasn't happened to me. And holy cow, I hope it doesn't happen to me because I'm up for tenure next year. But yeah, $1.165 million right there. One more trans story for you. An openly transgender woman has just become the first mayor elected in the great country of Canada, right to the north of us. Julie Lemieux is also the first female mayor in the this Montreal town, which I can't pronounce because my French is just absolutely terrible, but this town has a 136-year history, and Julie Lemieux is the first female mayor of this Montreal town as well. Many supporters of the new mayor have said that they did not think about the fact that Lemieux was transgender when voting for her. According to one report, the residents of this town, which again, I can't pronounce because I suck at French. They said they wanted change. One of Lemieux's supporters said that she believed the town's decision was a sign of openness. She added this quote, I think this opens up the door to anyone who feels different in society. It doesn't matter who you are. If you want to do something, then you should do it. So again, congratulations to Julie Lemieux, who became the mayor of a town that I hope she can pronounce because I sure cannot. And finally, if you need some entertainment, then you need to, I, I'm telling you, it's almost beyond conception, and I know everybody is sharing it, uh, but there was a conference called Countering the LGBT Agenda. Okay, it's a conference called Countering the LGBT Agenda. It features evangelical shock jocks, a sermon from Vice President Mike Pence, and, you know, this thing that happened at the start, right at the the start, the group's chairman, he handed over the reins of this conference to a dancer who was waving two multicolored flags. He proceeded to do he proceeded to do an interpretive dance with the flags to a song that Shazam informs the news media is Christian singer Matthew West's track The List. And it goes on for five minutes and it is one of the funniest things that you have ever seen. And as many people have said, it's also, let me just say, one of the most gay things you will ever see in your entire life there at this very anti-LGBT conference. By the way, can we also highlight that Vice President Mike Pence is speaking at a conference that features leaflets that say this quote, the sexual revolution and mainstreaming of homosexuality have created a public health crisis affecting us all, but the media give little attention attention to the danger of gay and lesbian sexual practices and the resulting health problems experienced by the gay, lesbian, bisexual population. And it goes on to say really horrible things about gay people, and yet the vice president of these United States is speaking at that conference. But if you need something to be thankful for on this Thanksgiving, my gosh, you need to see this guy waving these rainbow flags. It's quite hilarious. And that's, my friends, is all the time that we have for this week's episode. Our thanks, of course, to Emily Waters and all the folks over at the Anti-Violence Project. They are doing such incredible work there. And, of course, our thanks to you. I'm thankful for you guys. I'm thankful for you using your energy the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. Get out there. Put on a cape. Use your voice to make a difference. And please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay? <laughs>